Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, So, Ken, when we recorded this show last week, we recorded on Wednesday, the closing arguments in Donald Trump's civil trial in New York, the trial, the, the case brought by the New York Attorney General, were on Thursday. And where we left it on Wednesday was that Trump had asked to be allowed to give uh, some portion of his own closing argument. And Judge Engeron had made some offer, basically, he can he can speak if he agrees to these terms and conditions about, you know, the, the ways in which he is not allowed to speak. He can't testify, et cetera, et cetera. And they were not able to come to terms. Chris Kyes, Trump's attorney, sent sort of uh, uh, vague objections to this, but didn't make a counterproposal, uh, didn't agree to the terms by the judge's deadline. And so it was supposed to be that Trump was not allowed to give his own closing. And, and I would note, you're allowed to represent yourself in court, but Trump was not representing himself in court uh, so that he was not necessarily allowed to appear as his own attorney uh, in the closing argument phase. So anyway, he wasn't supposed to give a closing argument. Then he gets into court on Thursday and he sort of does give a closing argument. So how did that happen? Well, this is something where it's clear that the purpose of this was political. Um, Trump and his attorneys wanted to make a spectacle out of the closings as they've tried to make a spectacle out of most of the trial. Judge Engoron wasn't required to cooperate with this. Uh, Trump is represented. Uh, Trump's not allowed to do things on behalf of entities anyway, since he's not a lawyer. He could only hypothetically represent himself, but he doesn't. Um, Judge Engoron sent a series of emails laying down some reasonable rules, basically not speechifying, not attacking people, not turning it into a campaign rally, that type of thing that that Chris Kyes, Trump's lawyer, really didn't respond substantively to. So it looked like it was going to go forward with Trump, as would be typical, not giving his own closing. But as it turned out, we kind of got the best or, if you prefer, the worst of all worlds. Uh, Judge Engoron allowed Trump to make a statement, most likely simply because why not? And why not remove any possible uh, appellate issue, however stupid that appellate issue would be? Uh, Again, this is a bench trial, so there's no issue about how a jury is going to be influenced. Exactly. And it's a bench trial where, where, with all respect to the judge, he's, he's pretty clearly made up his mind very soundly on most of the issues. He had ruled uh, on some summary judgment motions ahead of trial that made liability pretty clear. And he's made other statements, makes it pretty clear that he has reached some conclusions about this situation. Mm-hmm. So really, um, nothing had happened here is surprising. Trump got up. Trump acted like Trump. You know, he was uh, attacking the judge, attacking the attorney general, making himself a martyr, uh, making political statements, just all the stuff you would expect Trump would, would do. Judge Engeron made some gestures towards asking Chris Kyes to control his client. Kyes didn't, and, and then it was pretty much over. All this happened in the shadow, by the way, of there having been a bomb threat at Judge Engeron's home that morning, which is the sort of thing that happens if you do stuff that Trump doesn't like. So, um, it all went pretty much the way you would think it was. Trump didn't do anything like that um, was particularly notable uh, in the context of Trump. It, it would have been catastrophic in the context of any normal human or any normal litigation. But in the context of Trump, it was just sort of more of the same, a little boring, frankly. It's it's interesting to me that the use of the courtroom as a PR strategy 
Because there are no cameras in the courtroom. I mean, obviously, there's news coverage. We're talking about it now. There's reporting on what Trump said in the courtroom. But this would be a lot more effective as a PR strategy if he were doing this on camera. There won't be cameras in the federal courtrooms, even though they've made this gesture toward asking for special permission for cameras, which simply isn't done in federal court. I guess if the RICO case in Georgia ever got to trial, conceivably that could be on camera. Um, I'm not sure that it's going to go to trial. Right. Um, but so Trump, in, in a weird way, is being denied his opportunity to get really on stage in these in these cases. He keeps showing up to court in order to generate press attention around that. Among other things, it starves attention from his primary opponents in the GOP primary. People are talking about Trump in court, and therefore they're not talking about Ron DeSantis. But he hasn't he's not really getting that opportunity to have his like his his Lance Ito moment and actually be there on television doing this. Well, Josh, I'm not sure if there's any function our court system could perform that would result in people talking about Ron DeSantis. But um, <laughs> yeah, and the thing about Trump is that, you know, he everyone's always talked about how good he is at sucking all the oxygen out of the room. And certainly his his behavior in cases and courts has been effective at drawing attention to him. But there's also sort of diminishing returns. So uh, sooner or later, you've 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 run out of Trump things to do and you got to Trump harder than you ever Trumped before. And he just doesn't have it in him. So, again, this, which would have been huge news in the context of anything normal, was just kind of mundane. Um, just Trump saying the same things he always says in the same tone of voice he always says it. Uh, it, it was not really big news. So it gets harder and harder, I think, for him to to draw all that attention just by doing the same old shtick. Trump has been having some other civil litigation problems uh, Let's talk first about the New York Times. Uh, there was this some years ago, the New York Times published a story uh, about Trump's finances that relied upon documents that were provided by Mary Trump, Trump's niece who opposes him politically. Uh, and Trump alleged that she had misappropriated the documents, that it was improper for the New York Times to use them. And he sued the Times and a number of reporters. Uh, and he lost. And under New York's anti-slap statute, uh, he's going to have to pay nearly $400,000 in legal fees related to that. That's right. Uh, the, the judge... Um dismissed the action under New York's relatively new and very strong anti-slap statute back in May. And the judge has now determined that 392000 and change is an appropriate amount to pay uh, the attorneys who represent the New York Times and the reporters, which uh, is, let me just say, is a lot of money. And you could do an anti-slap motion for a lot less than that. But when you come in big with a big, splashy, threatening lawsuit, you can't really complain when the New York Times and the reporters hire, you know, a big team of lawyers and those lawyers spend a lot of money. So uh, this is the sort of thing that happens. This this ironically is is just a little more than what Trump was awarded way back when Stormy Daniels sued him for defamation. Uh, <laughs> and she lost. So And lost on her own anti-slap uh, motion, right? Exactly. So now we have sort of a precedent that any Trump-related anti-slap stuff is going to cost you around $300,000, $400,000. Uh, <laughs> nice work if you can get it. Uh, so, yeah, it, there's not really a good prospect that he's going to overturn this on appeal. So this is just another debt uh, that he will have to deal with. I don't know that it really is a deterrent to Trump or super rich people like Trump, and we'll give that to a little later today, um, in filing suits like this. I mean, I think Trump and his lawyers probably think that 
400 grand for the amount of publicity and attention they got over railing against the New York Times and and its reporters uh, is probably uh, a fair price. I'm not sure about that. I mean, certainly that's the way we've talked about, you know, $10,000 sanctions awards and that sort of thing. But, you know, $400,000 here, $400,000 there, sooner or later, you're talking about real money, especially in the context that a lot of this sooner or later comes out of campaign accounts. And when you're talking about, you know, several hundred million dollars for for a political campaign, $400,000 can buy, you know, a fair amount of of ads in in Nevada or Michigan. Um, And, you know, it's obviously it's not just the one case, but the the Trump's overall strategy of just throwing everything possible at the wall in all of this litigation, where he's incurring a tremendous amount of legal fees on his own side on on top of any legal fees he might be required to pay for opponents. It's, you know, it is a real political trade-off. Certainly a lot of Republicans who aren't Trump wish that he was spending less of this money on legal proceedings and more of the money campaigning to try to help Republicans win elections. Sure. It doesn't help Republicans, but uh, does it help Trump more than it hurts him? I mean, this is his gimmick. This is his brand is uh, lashing out at people he hates and that his followers hate, like the New York Times and like journalists. And he gets a lot of attention for doing it. It drives donations. So it might be a good deal for him, if not for the Republican Party. It might be, but it, it depends on you know the specific award in a specific case. Did, did the specific suit against Mary Trump in the New York Times raise him incrementally more than $400,000 compared to all the other stuff he was doing to chum up the water? I, I don't know. It's, it's possible that the strategy overall is working for him and that specific items could still be missteps because they are individually too expensive to be worth it. Oh, you know, frankly, Josh, the other thing is rich people have expensive hobbies, right? And so <laughs> if if filing slap suits and, and, you know, making extravagant threats and carrying them through uh, entertains them for a while, it's $400,000 for a billionaire really that out there compared to what he might, you know, normally use it for, like uh, solid gold toilets or stuff like that. Meanwhile, we, we've talked some about this additional E. Jean Carroll defamation lawsuit. Uh, against the former president after having already won her her first lawsuit or her first lawsuit to get to judgment anyway. And so this is supposed to go to trial. It's been on the schedule for months. Uh, Trump filed a last minute motion to delay the trial. He said he has to go to his mother-in-law's funeral. Um, and that interferes with his intention to attend the trial. Uh, e. Jean Carroll's attorneys pointed out that he, he scheduled a campaign event in New Hampshire right around the time that he's supposed to go to that funeral, calling into question whether he really has a bona fide personal reason why he would need to avoid the trial. And the judge declined the continuance, but sort of managed to avoid getting into that specific question of was Trump lying? Yeah. I mean, first of all, the suggestion that Trump would go to his mother-in-law's funeral was sort of dubious from the start. Um, but yeah, the, the Eugene Carroll's lawyers filed a very, very arch letter, um, basically accusing him of lying and trying to deceive the court. And the judge here, like Judge Angeron, is like, let me just give this guy all the rope he needs to hang himself, but I'm not going to like take the bait. So the judge didn't, you know, issue an order to show cause Ray lying to me. He didn't rail against him for being a liar. He didn't call him a deceiver, all that. He just said, eh, you know what? You don't have to be at this trial. It's a civil trial. You're not required to be here. Uh, Continue it. We'd have to cancel the jury panel and all this other stuff. So no, I'm not going to continue it. But, you know, you don't have to be here if you don't want to be. He did have this little caveat that it was basically if they're getting right up to the funeral and the only thing left in the case is Trump's own testimony and he intends to testify, at that time, he will continue the case until the following Monday so Trump can testify. 
which is not going to happen. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So, okay. So it's basically the, it's the it's the little bone there that, that Trump is not going to actually find useful to pick up. Yeah. A, a lot of this stuff is like uh, just judges deciding um, just to give Trump stuff that doesn't hurt the proceeding, doesn't hurt the judge uh, to make things simpler. So a lot of the time trial lawyers will tell you that if you start winning all your motions and the mm-hmm. judge starts giving you a thing you ask for or not sanctioning you when you do bad things, that's a bad sign because basically the judge is now protecting the record and thinking, let's give you, you you're going to lose this case. So I'm just going to let you win all your motions and get all your requests so that uh, you have nothing to complain about on appeal. This is sort of similar. This is Angeron and now this judge in, um, in this case basically saying, you know, what is it going to hurt? Uh, let's not give the guy anything to complain about. Let's talk about Rudy Giuliani. Rudy Giuliani has filed for bankruptcy uh, after having a nine-figure judgment award entered against him in the defamation case brought by election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, whom he accused of being at the center of a conspiracy to steal Georgia's electoral votes from Donald Trump. Uh, And so now there is a creditors committee for the unsecured creditors in the Rudy Giuliani bankruptcy estate. And that committee consists of of three people. Uh, One of them is Shea Moss, one of those election workers. One of them is Dominion Voting Systems, a corporate person. Dominion has an active lawsuit against Giuliani uh, for accusing them of being at the center of a similar election conspiracy. Dominion, of course, won or received an enormous settlement from Fox News on similar claims. And then the third is Noelle Dunphy, who we talked about some months ago. She has this quite strange lawsuit of her own against Rudy Giuliani. It's she claims she was his employee and he he didn't pay her. It's not really clear that there's documentation of that. Were they just having an affair, et cetera? Anyway, so these these three, the someone who's received a judgment from Giuliani and two people who conceivably could receive judgments from Giuliani, they are the creditors committee. What does that mean they're going to do with regard to Rudy Giuliani? Well, in bankruptcy, um, the the bankruptcy trustee, the person supervising the case, uh, appoints a creditors committee to represent the interests of all creditors. And they will have a big voice with the bankruptcy court about how the case should go. Um, They will decide often how aggressively um, the person's assets will be pursued, what types of workouts will be tolerated. Uh, it can make a huge difference in how your bankruptcy goes. And this for Giuliani is quite a, sort of a, a jury of the damned. Uh, it's kind of a worst <laughs> case scenario for him, for the people who are going to be making the calls about how his bankruptcy is going to go. It basically ensures that there is going to be incredibly close scrutiny, not uh, the normal type of scrutiny uh, over Rudy Giuliani and like what he can get away with and what money he's going to get to keep and how his assets are going to be sold and you know what the court is told about what he's doing and all this. Josh, this is this is the equivalent of like my jury being um, Michael Avenatti, the guy who drafted the RICO <laughs> statute and the concept of venue. Uh, it, it, it's really bad. Uh, so it, it assures that. Rudy is not going to be able to get away with stuff in this bankruptcy proceeding. Do these three 
creditors, do they have interests that are adverse to each other in some ways? I mean, uh, Shea Moss already has a judgment. Dominion and Noel Dunphy are both trying to get judgments or, or settlements of their own. They're fighting over a limited pot of money that is definitely much smaller than the total amount of judgments they could receive. What, what do they do about their interests relative to each other? It's a good question. So sometimes those interests uh, come up and conflict. Sometimes the the creditors committee, in effect, dissolves or gets pulled apart as a result of it. But the, the bankruptcy judge ultimately makes decisions. Creditors committee is supposed to maximize the amount of money that comes into the bankruptcy estate to uh, pay potential creditors. And yes, at some point, um, they their interests are adverse. At that point, you know they're no longer making decisions as a committee. The bankruptcy judge is going to make those decisions. And then also in in Georgia, Rudy Giuliani has been making some arguments to dismiss the RICO indictment against him, where he's one of the large cast of people who are under this RICO indictment. We've talked last week about some potential significant problems for that case to, to do with with Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, the the outside uh, attorney she hired to, to lead the prosecution of the case. Um, but Giuliani has some different arguments, including that he could face double jeopardy if he were charged about similar things in other states. Yeah. I it, mean, isn't it always true that you could face double jeopardy if someone else charged you about the things that you're currently charged about? Don't, don't you have to wait for that to happen? Yeah. You know, let's see if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a wagon thing. Um, so <laughs> uh, this was a hearing where a bunch of the defendants had various motions to dismiss. And Giuliani's was just not supposed to be argued because he has a, a new attorney, this attorney, Alan Stockton, after he lost his past attorneys. And uh, the government hadn't even opposed his motion yet because of that. It was going to happen in the future. But Judge McAfee um, basically raised some issues and said, you know, Mr. Stockton, you and your client are arguing that, uh, you know, this would be double jeopardy if we speculate that he might get charged later. But isn't it the case that those would be charges by separate sovereigns and therefore wouldn't the separate sovereign doctrine allow that to happen even if it did happen? And it's it's an excruciating moment. Stockton sort of hems and haws and says, well, judge, you may have a point there. There may be something to that. And Oh, I, as a, as a, a trial lawyer, I, I, without being too graphic, this had the physiological effect of jumping into an icy lake uh, watching this happen. <laughs> <laughs> so it was terrible. This actually brings me to a question about the creditors committee, which like, you know, if, if a company was in bankruptcy and you had a bunch of creditors and, you know, they one of the things that needs to be approved by the bankruptcy court is the company needs to spend money on its operations in order to preserve its value, in order to ultimately repay the creditors. If the if the company is involved in litigation and it needs to win that litigation to preserve value and pay the creditors, the creditors and the court will agree that the company may pay the attorneys out of money that otherwise might be held for the creditors. What happens with Giuliani's ongoing litigation? Presumably, it's preferable for the creditors, at least in a criminal case. Why do they want Giuliani spending money on attorneys? Are they going to have an ability to basically prevent him from diverting money that could be used to pay their judgments in order to defend his other cases? They'll have a voice, but not an ability to prevent it. The trustee has a say as well. Giuliani has a say. The bankruptcy judge uh, makes the ultimate determination. But 
the trustee's interest is in maximizing the value of the state to pay creditors as much as possible. That does not mean necessarily rolling over and admitting liability in cases. Right. Uh, so it's very typical in a bankruptcy case uh, to ask the judge for permission to continue to defend a contingent liability uh, in an ongoing litigation. So, yeah, there could be. Well, but there, what about a criminal case like this? That's not a contingent liability. No, it's not. Although, again, it, it can be because a criminal case can re, uh, result in large fines or disgorgement or, or, or things like that. And typically, it would be the sort of thing that the, the person in bankruptcy would petition and probably get permission to spend money on. Um, so, uh, yeah. Let's talk about Bill Ackman. Bill Ackman ha- has been one of the people leading the charge against the administration at Harvard University. He's very concerned about anti-Semitism on campuses. He's He really has diarrhea of the mouth. He just won't shut up about it. Actually, this is true. This has been true of Bill Ackman forever. If you followed him as a finance guy, his behavior as someone who's now prominent in politics is really not surprising at all. He's always been emotionally incontinent. Um, he cried during one of his presentations about his Herbalife short position nine years ago. Uh, he had a half hour feud on CNBC with Carl Icahn once where they were basically shouting insults at each other. So like, th- if, if, you're, if you're a markets person, Bill Ackman's behavior in the last couple of months is not surprising at all. If you're primarily a politics person, you might be like, who the fuck is this guy and who behaves like this in public? So, so first of all, welcome uh, to your following of Bill Ackman if you're not someone who's been doing that for a very long time for Wall Street reasons. Uh, so anyway, Bill Ackman was initially concerned about anti-Semitism. Then uh, some uh, conservative activists and reporters turned up uh, evidence of plagiarism on the part of Harvard President Claudine Gay, which is ultimately what brought her down. And then Business Insider, my former employer, reported that Bill Ackman's wife, who is an academic and who used to be a uh, professor at MIT, had plagiarized in some of her own papers, uh, copying from from other academic sources and also copying from Wikipedia. Bill Ackman is very upset about this, uh, and he is threatening uh, very loudly that he is going to file a defamation lawsuit against Business Insider uh, over their accusation that his wife engaged in plagiarism. Now, normally, we, we try to avoid talking about lawsuits until a complaint has been filed, because that's when we can actually talk about, you know, what is it supposedly at issue in this case, and is it bullshit or not? Um, but And Bill Ackman says that in a few weeks, they will have a complaint that they're filing. He says, I know most defamation lawsuits are losers, but this one is going to be a winner. His main contention seems to be not about the facts of the case, but about definitions. He says that plagiarism requires fraud. Plagiarism requires intent. Fraud is a crime. Uh, you're a, the, and my wife did not intend to copy anything here, and therefore it is slanderous to accuse her of plagiarism. So what kind of argument is that? It's a terrible argument. Uh, it is the argument of an emotionally incontinent billionaire. Uh, So it's the type of argument we've seen from Elon Musk. And the tell here is how he went about this. He first complained to to Business Insider's ultimate owners and sort of, hey, I'm a billionaire. Can't you help me out here type of thing? And And I I should note those ultimate owners, Business Insider is owned by Axel Springer, which is a German news publishing company. They own Bild and Die Welt, which are two major newspapers in Germany. Axel Springer, in turn, is part owned by KKR, which is a a major private equity firm. And so Ackman has been trying to put shaming and public pressure on both of those and has also been implying that whatever defamation liability exists here moves upstream to those entities. Yeah. So he's basically mad 
that someone did to his wife, uh, Nary Oxman, sort of the same thing that was done to Claudine Gay, which is to uh, go through past publications, look for things that appear to be very parallel in the sense of lifting big chunks of text and um, not putting them in, in quotations, but having citations to where they came from in the materials, um, except with, I think, with the, with respect to Wikipedia, I don't believe that was footnoted. Um, <laughs> and it's very much a sort of, you can't do that to me, don't you know who I am and who my wife is type of attitude. Um, the, the Business Insider article um, is net defamatory. It lays out, here's what we found, you know, compare this to this. And, you know, in our view, that's plagiarism or by the standard that that was set in the evaluation of Claudine Gay's materials, that's plagiarism. It's an opinion based on disclosed facts and this theory that, but it isn't actually plagiarism under this different definition I want to come up with, is not a thing. So it's it's a, a very, um, it's a very meritless legal threat. He really seems to also be arguing that, you know, he says, this is the sort of thing that that drives vulnerable people to suicide. My wife is an introvert, all this stuff. It's a lot of special pleading. And it's a, it's a lot of special pleading that his wife isn't a public figure, shouldn't be involved in this. But she very much is a public figure, at least in the academic context. Uh, she's she's a academic. She's an artist. Uh, she's well-known. She's had publications. Uh, she's, she's been on the cover of both Wired and Fast Company in the last few years. That's right. Although she hasn't gone to federal prison, which is what often what happens to you if you're on those. Um, <laughs> and so it, saying that she's a, some sort of private, obscure figure is is nonsense. But modern America, I mean, if a billionaire wants to sue you for defamation, the billionaire is going to sue you for defamation. The billionaire will find sleazy lawyers who will bring a bogus lawsuit for defamation or, or other things. I mean, it, it, remember um, Elon Musk's uh, suit for X uh, that uh, he filed in Texas to evade California anti-slap laws to complain about mean things being said about X, that type of thing. Uh, Bill Ackman is going to find sleazy lawyers who will file a sleazy lawsuit that will attempt to, you know, evade anti-slap statutes. It will attempt to evade the normal rules applying to defamation cases. Probably it'll be, you know, uh, false light, invasion of privacy, all those types of things that are just cutouts for defamation. And it's very likely that it will ultimately not succeed, but that's not really what it's necessarily uh, designed to do. The process is the punishment. It's designed to subject people to litigation, cost them a lot of money. I mean, the underlying arguments that he's making here are really, they're not legal arguments. They're, they're arguments about journalism ethics or prioritization in journalism. I mean, it's basically the idea is, you know, my wife is not the president at MIT. She's not even on the faculty at MIT anymore. She's also not me. Uh, if, if, you know, if I'm Bill Ackman speaking, it's, right. you know, basically Bill Ackman was in this fight with Harvard, but but she wasn't. And that sort of just, you know, picking some academic and going through her record like this was, you know, was was not an appropriate allocation of news resources or something, which is an argument you can have. Sure. But it's not an argument for the courts. No, it's, it's not a legal argument. It's not a cause of action. I mean, really, Bill Ackman seems to be mad because he screwed his wife over. Uh, <laughs> so um, she would not be dragged into this if he were not 
not only someone who pushed this whole thing against Claudine Gay, but was a, a dick when he was doing it, uh, an extravagant, flamboyant jerk. Uh, and that's what dragged his wife in, and he knows it. And now he just can't stop doubling down and making it worse because, of course, he can't sue Business Insider. You know, you, you can't sue for uh, defamation for harm to your reputation because someone said something about your wife. It's not the, it's not the 19th century. Uh, so he would have to make her sue. And that would be terrible. Right. Well, yeah, that's the interesting thing, because when these first allegations came out, uh, Neri Oxman put out a statement that I thought was pretty savvy as a PR matter, where she she owned up to the copying and and said, you know, that I apologize, uh, and you know, I didn't I didn't intend to do this, and 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 then sort of talked up the substance of her work. She's not an academic anymore, and the the people that she's doing business with now wouldn't necessarily care about this past academic allegation if they think the substance of her work is good, and it sort of seemed like a good way to try to move past the news story. Her husband seems intent on Streisand affecting her, basically wants she will have to be the plaintiff in this case. And so instead of there being a one day story about plagiarism in her academic papers that that very few people might have cared about other than as a gotcha on Bill Ackman, it's a story that would persist for years if they, in fact, proceed with this litigation It's going to dominate her public image in a way that does not seem likely to serve her interests. Yeah, I mean, her, her statement was very good. It was about the best thing you could do in the situation. She seems to be, uh, aside from terrible taste in men, a perfectly sensible person and uh, someone who's smart and has decent judgment. But this is going to be terrible Well, for except the plagiarism. Well, uh, yeah, but even that looked like sloppiness and not something that reflected her entire uh, life. And, you know, frankly, uh, yeah, he's making this much, much, much worse for his wife by continuing to double down. And, you know, typically when you make this sort of mistake, uh, a weekend trip to Aruba, maybe a diamond tennis bracelet, these are the things that you want to <laughs> think about to try to make things better. I, I don't know what the billionaire equivalent of that is. I don't know, bio an island or something. But uh, this is just the all around the wrong way to go about this if you're genuinely concerned about your loved one's reputation and not about your own ego and petulance. This is why I wonder if we're actually going to see this lawsuit. He says in a few weeks we'll have a lawsuit. He says it's going to be a really strong lawsuit. I mean, Bill Ackman, again, if you've been following him as a finance guy, you know, he has, you know, sort of like ready fire aim approach. You know, he like led this whole short campaign against Herbalife where he seemed to have failed to actually analyze its existing on the ground low income customers to discover that people really do drink those meal replacement shakes, whatever you think about the multi-level marketing structure of their business. He really he, he has a way of, of going in guns blazing without figuring out whether what he's doing is sensible. And so maybe that means he will file the lawsuit. But I also think that he may really genuinely believe that he's going to have a strong lawsuit. And if, you know, when his lawyers present him with something some weeks from now, and it looks more like something that exists to, to punish Business Insider through the process of litigation, rather than something that might actually win a judgment, I wonder if he's actually going to, if he and his wife, who again has to be the plaintiff, if they're actually going to pull the trigger on that. Well, yeah. I mean, let's not deprive his wife of agency. It depends on her relationship with him, I think. And she might put her foot down. Uh, we don't know what their relationship is like. I hope she puts her foot down. She ought to put her foot down because it's going to be terrible for her. As to what the lawyers are going to tell them, I mean, it depends on the sleaziness of the lawyers. The lawyers might say, yeah, I mean, this is a great idea. It's going to cost you some money, but let's go for it. Uh, that would be terrible advice as to um, Neri Oxman because it would be ruinous for her and her life and her reputation. But if the point of the suit is to assuage a billionaire's ego, I mean – Sure. Why not? 
<laughs> Let's talk about another kind of bullshit defamation lawsuit. Uh, this one's with Michael Flynn. Michael Flynn has filed suit in Florida against Nicole Wallace from MSNBC and Andrew Weissman, who was uh, Robert Mueller's deputy in the, in the Mueller investigation. Uh, Andrew Weissman said on MSNBC that Michael Flynn plotted the insurrection and that he actually did lie to the FBI. Um, this was in the case that w- against Michael Flynn that ultimately ended with a pardon from then-President Donald Trump. Uh, and so he's suing, saying that these statements were false and defamatory, that because of Andrew Weissman's own involvement in that investigation, he knew that the charges against Michael Flynn were always bogus. Can you really win a defamation case where you say someone defamed you by accusing you of doing something that you pleaded guilty to doing? I, I, it's a real uphill battle. Now, the, the plot of the insurrection one is more complicated, I think. And I think there it really comes down to whether that's treated as kind of a specific statement of fact that's provable or not, or sort of a rhetorical throwaway about his general connection uh, to the Trump administration. But the he actually did language comes in the context of them discussing the fact he pled guilty to it. He admitted to it. He And he confirmed his guilty plea when initially it was questioned. And so now, of course, he and all his supporters say, well, actually, you know, he didn't lie and the FBI agents weren't sure that he lied and blah, 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 blah. But that's a real uphill battle to when you pled guilty to something and admitted it repeatedly uh, under oath to later say that that, you know, it is it is actual malice to say that you actually did it. Um, his spin is that Weissman, as an insider in the prosecution, would have known all these factors that uh, were against the notion that he did it. And those were factors like, well, uh, you can read his statements as being technically not false. Uh, there, he was caught unawares, which of course he was because that's what the FBI does. Uh, he was flustered. Some of the agents had private doubts that he intentionally lied all this type of thing. I think it's a real stretch. And I think it's just more performative litigation, which he, by the way, and his family have been involved in from the jump. They're just not as good as publicizing it as Trump is. Is this the sort of case that's going to survive a motion for summary judgment? Well, you described what sound like a number of factual disputes there about what Andrew Weissman actually knew uh, about, you know, the the truth or falsity of specific statements that Michael Flynn made. Is is it going to be possible to dispose of this on a motion to dismiss or or summary judgment? Are they going to have to get to trial or settlement in order to adjudicate those? Possible, yes. Certain, no. So I think if it gets down to any sort of analysis of what Weissman knew or didn't know, then uh, it's going to be hard to get rid of at the pleading stage or at summary judgment. I I think it's more likely you'd win if you just said that as a matter of law, if someone pleads guilty and admits to something repeatedly, that you can't establish actual malice uh, in saying that he actually did it. Mm -hmm. So... Well, we'll watch that. Uh, Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>